Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. I'm Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Case and Julie Trepkow. We're really excited to be talking to Julie today. Yanni, I'm in the car. Did you just make that up? Hi. That's true. You can speak to me as an inferior. That's good. Wow. Yeah. Actually, you're younger than me, so I can. You have that's to right. Me, you I have ha- to call me Nuna. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Uh, that's for younger sisters. Um, Anni is for an older sister if you're a younger sister, and Nuna if you're is if you're a boy, and I'm the older. No, sister, which is no. What I, I learned am. the opposite. <laughs> no, oh, I messed that up. Okay, okay. messing with you. Yeah, maybe they were. <laughs> oh my god, I had to call all, everybody Hyungnim as oh. like a rite of passage, which I think means like older gangster brother. <laughs> it just means older brother. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's so um, I'm super honored to be on here with you guys, and it's also just so fun to connect with you. Um, I was thinking about it, and I thought I've known these guys for a really long time. I remember I meeting Russell at Holly and Sati's Satu, yeah, old Satu, mm-hmm. yeah. The after Holly and Tony's and the Kevin, oh, and then it became before the Kevin. We met there, didn't we? It was, was it before Shakti the Kevin at the Shakti house. It was mm-hmm. after the Kevin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was like 2007, maybe the end of 2006, something like that. On my first trip to Mysore. Yeah, and I think I met you then too. So that's been a long. I think time. so. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) And you were living in Germany then? Um, I had, I was kind of in between. I was leaving Hong Kong and I think I had just had all my stuff shipped to Germany and had touched down for like three weeks. And then I went to Mysore. Wow. Yeah. Well, maybe we should start from the beginning. Okay. So I, I think I learned that you went to Columbia College, Columbia University. Is that right? I went to Columbia University, but I went to Barnard College, which is a women's school that's affiliated with Columbia University. Okay. So there are four undergraduate schools at Columbia University, and Barnard College is the, uh, one of them, and Columbia College is another one. Um, but I went to Barnard. So and I had a, yeah. Are you, were you a New Yorker? Um, well, the, when we first moved to the States from Korea, um, we landed in Queens. And uh-huh. so my earliest memories of being, you know, just turned four are in the New York City streets and those brick buildings near the projects and, you know, people with round afros playing basketball. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 1976. Yeah. Um, you, yeah. You are older than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> And what was that like for you? Because you could you speak English when you came to the U.S. or no? no you're English. full Korean yeah. only speaking. Yeah. What about your parents? Uh, my parents both spoke English. Um, okay, that's helpful. Yeah, they both spoke English, and um, so they could kind of get around. But you know, it's a it's 
a tremendous cultural shift in so many ways. Um, and I can only imagine what it was like for them. I can kind of compare it to my experience in Germany, but I'm so Americanized that um, I have a different perspective. But I got a, a window into what it must have felt like um, as a person of color, you know, landing in 1976 in Queens. Um, so I got a little hint of what that might have been like. But um, as a as a newly four-year-old, I didn't really understand. You know, we were together and suddenly we did Christmas in a totally different way. And we had this tree and um, I went to nursery school and um, and I didn't think anything weird of it. But I think right. I was traumatized more like by being separated from our grandparents who lived with us. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, it was like we're just doing this thing now. Were you sitting on the floor at home in the traditional way, or did you actually have to like use American tables and chairs? We had an American table and chairs, but everyone preferred to sit on the floor. So you know those Korean um, folding tables? They're like black lacquer with the mother mm-hmm. of pearl inlays on them. Like every Korean family has one in different sizes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we always unfolded yeah. that and sat around on the floor. And I still like eating on the floor. Like, I can't sit in a chair. It's like my legs are hanging down. It's so heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah we always sit cross-legged in chairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like in like in Padmasana, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I was corporate, I was um, doing that because I had been doing Ashtanga for a couple of years and I was still corporate. And I'm like, I can't sit in a chair anymore. I have to like sit in a squat or like yeah. in Padmasana. <laughs> But, but that was the interesting thing when I was in Korea teaching corporate guys is that they were all sitting on the ground in Padmasana, oh, like 50-year-old cool. men smoking and drinking soju. I was like, yeah. this, is the, this, is, this is out of this world. This is yeah. completely different from the guys I know at home. Yeah, yeah. In Except their for bodies. the drinking part, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you my, went to you went to London School of Economics. I went there for my master's. Yeah. Uh-huh. That wow, that's fun. really really corporate. It was pretty corporate. I studied um, social anthropology and development studies, and I had this idea that I wanted to work for an NGO, or maybe the UN, or maybe the World Bank. But that's too many numbers for me. Um, <laughs> but I so where did you end up? Well, I ended up going to Hong Kong and working for the Wall Street Journal there doing communications, which is not what I planned at all. Um, but I had this idea that I wanted to work for an NGO and I wanted to do, you know, helpful things and change the world and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then in the program, I was like, this is feels really racist to me. <laughs> this feels really colonial to me. Yeah, um, interesting. And, uh, and then I, I applied for the PhD program at the LSC, and then um, I got accepted, and then I got engaged, and then all that went out the window, and then uh, my husband at the time and I, we went to Hong Kong. Um, and he's German? No, he, it was a different husband. Oh, I have, we have the, we have that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. I kind of like to say it. I'm like my first husband yeah. during my first marriage. Yeah. Yeah. The, the problem for me is I referred to my wife as my first wife throughout the all, throughout the marriage. Oh. <laughs> oh no! Is that a little? That's prophetic? a true story. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when yeah. I get to my second wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was it was uh, so. 
you met him in Hong Kong. And I met him, him in my anthropology seminar at the LSC. Okay. And uh, he was from Norway and had just come from China where he'd been studying. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I was very impressed by the fact that A, he spoke fluent Mandarin. And um, wow. he finished like two years of university at Fudan University in, in China. And then um, he was very cerebral, very academic. And um, I was very impressed by that in, in the, at that time. Um, little did I know that that was part of my misguided youth, <laughs> making yeah. that decision. <laughs> Sometimes those things that you're so attracted to at the beginning are actually the downfall of the totally. relationship, aren't they? It's, it's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I ask uh, before, before just to set this whole life up for you when you were in Queens and you 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 went to Barnard it just strikes me as a very high powered and I'm just wondering like uh, how your parents motivated you and pushed you into school were they sending you to to like magnet schools were you, you know were, were you a triple threat I mean if you if you know that term from I don't know that term what is that. It's well, my friends who would who were going to magnet schools. They would say, you know, pl- have a, a sport, an instrument, and uh, you know, like perfect SATs, like the triple threat. Oh, or as they they would say, the like the full Asian package. You know, my parents were interesting because they were both you know traumatized in their own way. But my dad, to me, was my hero for all three of us. We there are three girls in my family, and he was just, you know, he was. He, we lost him last year, and I always felt like I'm so lucky. We're so lucky he was our dad. And I know that, you know, anybody who gets to say that, especially, not especially, that's not fair, um, for girls, for women, for little girls, it's mm-hmm. so important, you know, because what you're normal is this wonderful, present person who loves you unconditionally. Um, and that's that feels normal. So what a gift to go into the world with that kind of baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had his own trauma. My mom was, is, she's still around. She's, um, she was really the pusher. She was very, you know, and I, this is not to say bad things about her. I've worked on my um, relationship with her a lot from my end, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not really from her end, but yeah. from my end. <laughs> and I know that all, she was all about, you know, she was just basically dealing with her trauma in her own way. But um, she was really the ambitious one. She was the one who wanted to leave Korea. She wanted to chase that American dream. Um, so growing up, like I didn't even know there was an option to not get straight A's and go to an Ivy League school. I thought that's just what you're supposed to do. I didn't know yeah, I had right. even had a choice not to go to college. Um, yeah. And I went to a college prep school for high school. It was an all-girls Catholic school, which I totally loved, not for the Catholic part, but, you know, wearing a uniform and, like, not having boys to fight over. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Were, like were, you, were you Presbyterian? No. Like, my dad was kind of, like, not really anything, but my mom was really into the Korean Catholic Church, and we were really? all, like, yeah, she's and she's still really into it. Um, and we were all, like, Technically, we were all converted into there, but like, you know, Jesus is cool, but like, I never really felt it was like a personal um, choice on your part. Yeah. 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 A little removed. Yeah. Okay. And I saw how my dad was still really into, you know, his methods of so called discipline were much more about um, 
we've had the discussion about this. I want you to go find a quiet place and reflect, <laughs> you know? So. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. There's yeah. a, it's just like um, a couple of concepts. I'm going to try and pronounce correctly, like nuja uh, nim or kongja nim, like these kind of traditional Korean concepts of, that are, that are more about self-discipline, but also like following a flow, which I think is, yeah. if I'm if I'm pronouncing it right, it's like Confucius and and Taoism in its yeah. own way. Yeah, I mean it, that it makes sense to me, um, because I only learned more about those things as I grew older. You know, like things like the concepts, or um, I think those things were in practice. You know, in the way that my dad lived or the way that my mom sometimes saw the world, but um, I didn't know what they were. It was just something that happened like acupuncture or like right. you know, things right. that people do in Asia. I always saw my parents doing it, um, but I never thought it was anything special or interesting. Right. It was just, you know, sitting on the floor and, you know, right. meditating stuff like that. Like it was just, it wasn't even named. It was just something that you would do um, and it would be helpful to quiet your mind. Um I was I was so bewildered in Korea when I was I was 21 I was, I was so confused about how people were interacting with me and then I I picked up a, uh the 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 Analects by Confucius and suddenly it was like a like someone had pulled a um a, pulled the blinds up or or pulled the drapes and I could suddenly everyone's <clears throat> interactions made so much more sense through that lens of of respect and discipline, and there's a right way to talk to people, and 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 you should follow that way. Yeah, you know, for example, like you're saying no three times mm-hmm. was just it was like I didn't understand. You know, if someone said no, I would just like I'd just move on, and then I would, and then I was like, that's that was so rude of me, yeah, to not continue continuously ask people, and I I, I think. I think the the converse must have been true as well as like growing up in a Korean household in, in Queens and interacting with with Catholic you know presumably Irish girls in school those those interactions must also have been completely confusing. <laughs> it was um at that point when I went to high school we were in New Jersey by that point. Um, we did like New York City and then we went to Ohio for a few years and then to New Jersey. But um, I went to Catholic school in Ohio too when I was little, when I was maybe first, second, third, up to sixth grade, middle of sixth grade. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I always felt this kind of, um, it, and this is, I, I think it was very unintentional, but when you are an immigrant or the child of an immigrant family, um, first generation, you somehow, it's in your consciousness that you are marginalized. And I don't mean that in like a poor me way, but you just, it's just true. You know, you're just um, not really on the, in the, you don't know all the things, you know, of the dominant society. And I remember my mom for a couple of years, she worked outside the home. Maybe it was like 18 months and she worked in a nursing home. She had a nursing degree from Korea so she went to work as a nurse in a nursing home and she saw people putting this white flaky stuff over their tomato sauce on top of their spaghetti. And mm-hmm. she thought it was powdered creamer. And she uh. was like, why would they put powdered creamer? 
on top of their spaghetti. You know? <laughs> um, she yeah. didn't realize it was Parmesan cheese, but you know, you just do that. You serve spaghetti. There's a little thing of Parmesan next to it. And she was like, that's really weird. But then she started serving that at home. She's like, oh, I'm going to try out my American dishes. With the um, creamer. Yes, with the creamer. <laughs> oh, wow. And I'm like, this is really, this is really interesting. But again, I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then Something later, new. you know, I realized, oh, actually, I have Italian friends, and that's not actually creamer. It's cheese, mom. <laughs> <laughs> wow. D- that's so funny. Yeah, it's Did like you, little things like that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever find yourself um, em- embarrassed in growing up about things like that? Did you did you rage at your mom for those kinds of things? Um, not really. Um, you know, it was my mom had a lot of things about like there was no we weren't allowed to rage at her. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was, <laughs> you know, sounds like your your tiger mom <laughs> yeah she was in a way she was definitely and she like we didn't make decisions you know she's like okay so these are the list of colleges you're applying to do you have any input here um and i did have some input <laughs> i gave her some ideas but um it was really and i don't think she meant to and i and i definitely feel like she was much less controlling than a lot of other korean moms and um, other asian moms that i knew like moms of my friends um, but still, I think it's sprang from like this very deep insecurity or inferiority mm-hmm. that I think a lot of um, what's the right word? Um, non, I don't know what the word is. So you know, she's Korean and she grew up during two wars, mm-hmm. and yeah. America was always seen as like the pinnacle of you know what life could be like and um, she grew up seeing american soldiers kind of saving the day during the korean war and always being so poor and then seeing the american movies and all that kind of stuff so on one hand she had this really deep um cultural pride about all things korean that she still does almost to an extreme Um, and on the other hand it's almost like that exists to make up for this kind of inferiority that she always felt growing up so I think that it definitely bled on to how she wanted us to be so you know on one hand she was so proud of what our culture and um, handed down to us and on the other hand she was always reminding us like you're not one of them you know you're different right. from them you're not part of this culture or you are but you're not like these kids who grew up here who are yeah. white and blonde and you know you're always going to stand out and I'm like, I have no idea what you mean. We're like best friends, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> but on reflection, as I got older, I was like, wow, this is like deep and complex in many ways. And mm-hmm. I started to kind of really feel what she meant. And she really wanted you to succeed and, and realize you to do that, you had to be like the best. The best, yeah. And I wasn't, you know, like I liked school. School was fun, but it's just not my personality to be really serious and obsessive about things. Um, I'm not that competitive, you know, so to be like, she'd be like, well, the so-and-so's daughter went to Harvard Medical School. I'm like, that sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, she would. (laughs) Um, But it was it was it was hard so I just did what I was told to do and then um and I like school like learning is fun and I wanted to be in the city and I somehow you know got into Barnard I don't know how she made that happen but (laughs) 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 we made it happen (laughs) 
So she wanted me to go and like study political science or, you know, do something that would take me to law school because she thought that I'd be great at practicing law. And, um, and again, that's not something I wanted to do. Like for law school, I thought it'd be really great if I could work for some like humanitarian organization and then I would never be able to pay off my law school loans and, you know, things like right. that. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> it never quite fit. Yeah. Because <laughs> there was yeah. always this thing in me, like I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do, but it was so confusing because my mom's voice was so strong in what she thought that I should do. And, you know, when you're little, you just do, you know, like you just yeah. do what your parents tell you. And um, mm-hmm. it's very confusing. I think a lot of um, like first generation Americans or Canadians in, in experience this sort of uh, mm-hmm. cultural rub because um, you're being taught or, in, you know, surrounded by the culture that you're living in, which mm-hmm. is very much about independence and think for yourself and follow your dreams or, you know, make your own way. Like this kind of very um, individually focused sort of uh, ideology. Yeah. Yeah. And like, especially when you come from a culture, um, an an Asian culture in particular, it's, it's much more collectively focused Mm -hmm. and like what's good for the family, for our society, for all of us. And so it's, it's an interesting kind of friction that that happens there trying to figure out the balance between those two yeah. uh, emphasis. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's so, so true. And then there's that generational piece, like the time that my parents were born and then were coming of age. It was such a turbulent time yeah. of a lot of um, political change and turmoil and poverty and things like that. Um And I think they were, you know, that was imprinted on them because what I see now with like, you know, younger Korean parents and younger Korean people in Korea and um, Korean Americans who are born here to Korean American parents, it's a totally different feeling. It's not, it's, it's different. Um, Interesting. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I I could see that coming when when I was there, that there was a kind of cultural revolution, uh, a sexual revolution happening mm. in the counterculture. Um, K-pop, uh, you know, my my favorite bands like Sexy Kiss and High Five of Teenager. <laughs> Do you know, you must know them. We don't know. In 1998, they were absolutely huge <laughs> in Seoul. And, uh, and they were rivals, of course. And so... You know, they it was a it was a burgeoning thing, and my my friends were talking about it that there was this 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 movement's going to this movement's happening, and it's right up against this culture of discipline, and this um, it's also against this ephemeral quality of Han. Uh huh. That I think when you described your mother, like oh Han Isao, she she has that that permeating ineffable sadness yeah which you know this this desire for korea to be held in the regard that it should be at the same time like there's this sadness that japan has treated us so badly yeah you know it's so that that it's like k-pop is this is this a billion you know um attack on that feeling even yeah you know, screw that. We're not going to be sad all the time. Yeah. Let's just go and 
and do it gong gong style, you know. <laughs> gong gong style. I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. That was I my ringtone for a while. <laughs> <laughs> when I played it for the kids at school, you know, just to like get them to focus, they would all start dancing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. Um, but definitely the sense of very strong sense of melancholy. Um, yeah. yeah, in my parents' generation, for sure. But they were, they just saw so much growing up, you know, they experienced actual hunger. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, my mom was like abandoned alone um, during the war because her grandmother died in front of her and she was like five oh. and her parents were in Seoul. They thought they were sending her to the countryside to be safe with grandma. And then she caught some fever and died. So oh, she was alone God. on her grandmother's farm for like a month. God knows what happened to her. Um, oh, and wow. then her dad came Um and, you know, so, you know, all these things like we don't know, like I, I can't imagine or I can imagine, but I can only imagine the, the kinds of experiences that would have been imprinted on them from such an early age and how that affects everything that they do and, you know, how, what the lenses of perception are for them. It's just completely different. And it's only as I got older and started to really reflect on my feelings of, you know, marginalization, which is not the same as hers, or just coming into the world or anything, you know, parenting, you know, just fill in the blank, um, mm -hmm. everything that they already did, that I started to kind of reassess and revisit what those experiences um, would have been like for them. Yeah, I think when you have your own children, it it really, uh, you, you kind of go into this reflective space a lot. Mm -hmm. It really helps because all of a sudden, you're a mother yeah. and you're, you know, you have all your own sort of yeah. inherited and experiential um, lenses and you start yeah. to think like, what do I want to teach this child? And then you think about your parents and yeah, it's just like layers and layers of yeah. reflection start to happen. So much. And then as yoga practitioners, you know, and practitioners of other, um, forms of mindfulness, we're used to just kind of diving into all our junk. And yeah. so by the time I got pregnant with Lonnie, I was like, I think I'm ready now. I think I'm worthy of doing this mothering thing. And then she was born and I was like, maybe I'm not ready. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's, that's always what, you know, what I say to people that ask me, you know, well, you know, I want to have a kid, but I'm not ready. And I'm like, you know, you're never ready. Yeah. There's just like no right time or good time. Yeah. There's no ready. Yeah. Like you can be as prepared as as you possibly think you are can be, right? But then yeah. when it happens, you're like, oh my God. What's happening? And you never know <laughs> what, what you're gonna happen? get either. You know, you could have this like angelic child who's super, yeah. you know, mellow and you think you're just mastered this parenting game from the get-go. You're like, I'm yeah. born doing this. This is so easy. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily for me, it happened the other way. Lonnie was totally maniacal. I had a very difficult birth and she kept me awake and moving for three months straight. Like I lost all this weight. She was crazy. And then Kanoa was born and he was born on my yoga mat at home. And he slept oh. when I put him down. He was just, I'm like, is this real? Is he still sleeping? I have samurai swords of like milk letting down in my boobs, but he's still sleeping, you know? <laughs> I'm sorry. Can we go over that metaphor one more time? 
samurai swords. Okay, so Harmony's gonna know. I I understand completely. <laughs> samurai swords of milk. Yeah, it's like I don't when know your milk what you mean. Down. So sometimes your milk will just start to let down. The term is it'll just start to um come out. Release. Yeah, right. release. Yeah. And Express. Then, mm-hmm, yeah. Just because but you're not. It's just like they're full, and there's no more room. Yeah. Or your baby cried, or you looked yeah. at a picture of your baby and it was very moving. <laughs> yeah. Or um, another baby cried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or somebody else's baby cried, and that can also make yeah. your boobs let down. Yeah. But like you would sleep for hours, and my, I would start feeling these like sharp shards of milk coming out. I'm like, please yeah. wake oh. up. It's really painful. <laughs> That's what you mean yeah. by samurai swords yeah. of milk coming out. Oh my down. God. Okay. But was he really yeah. born on your yoga mat? He was, and it wasn't planned like that. I I did have a planned home birth after a cesarean. Uh-huh. Um, Lani was an unplanned cesarean, and Kanoa was a planned home birth. Um, wow. But it wasn't planned that I would be on my yoga mat. I just happened to come out of the birthing pool, and my yoga mat was there, and then he was coming out. So Wow. I know. And that was the mat that I took with me to Mysore every time. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a lucky man. <laughs> yeah. I hope you. I hope you cleaned it after. I did, and I still use it. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope you told Sharat that. I, hope you I told haven't. Him. I should tell him that. Yeah, my child was born where you're standing. You might never get an adjustment again. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm not sure they're not so good with like bodily wow. fluids, you know. Man. <laughs> Do you do you ever um, do you ever go back to the the homeland or the das das Heimatland? Um, I haven't been since in a long time. I think it was two thousand and five that I went with my mom. Yeah, and it was great to go with my mom because you know she knows all the things and she knows how to be and her body language changes and her the muscles in her face change like wow. it was so interesting like I could feel her feeling at home in a in a very wow. deep way you know um so I went it was, with my mom too oh, actually yeah and uh, I remember once we were in a hotel and a lady said to me wow your mother is fat. <laughs> your mother is fat like a cow oh no <laughs> and my mother it was in english and my oh. mother was standing oh. right there no. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah it was yeah brutal. they do that or like uh, maybe yeah. they didn't do it to you because you're you know you're a western man but I always found it hilarious. Like I was at an ATM machine trying to get money out and it's all in Korean. And, yeah. you know, I, I am a little bit embarrassed to admit that my Korean's not great. It's pretty bad, but I'm like trying to do the, read the, you know, hangul and do the ATM. The hangul, yeah. And yeah. apparently I was taking too long. This old Ajuma came and she just grabbed me by the arm. She's like, uh-uh, get out of here. <laughs> like taking yeah. too long. <laughs> yeah. Like, Let me yeah, go I have been... That I told my mom that the reason I'm leaving Korea is that too many old people had shoved me in the back and I had had enough. Like by the 150th time I'd been shoved in the back by a Korean, old Korean man, I said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not staying here. No. Getting bullied by old Korean people. That's not. Yeah. I don't want to. I know I'm not being bullied by old Korean people. And Korean girls don't like me. And it's like a whole combination. It's just like, no. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not, leaving. Is, I'm leaving. 
So how did you come to the Ashtanga yoga practice? Oh, well, like you, Harmony, I danced my whole mm-hmm. life. I don't, you, I, I'm guessing that you were probably, um, I don't know, actually, I don't know why, why I would guess that, but I started dance when I was about four. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I always loved it. And it was always, you know, just something that I loved to do. And of, of all the things that my mom had me try, it was basically the one thing that I loved to do that I always wanted to do. Um, that's and I continued nice. <laughs> and continued and continued. And I, I was pretty, I was pretty serious, at probably in like middle school, high school. Mm-hmm. And then around my senior year, I quit. I had to really focus on like SATs and getting into college and all that stuff. And, um, and then when I went to Barnard, I started dancing again. They have an awesome dance department. Twyla Tharp went there. Um, wow. Yeah. And so it was great. I got to dance again. Um, and then around like in my mid twenties, I guess, like even after graduating from college, I still wanted to go to ballet classes. I didn't pr- do any more performances, but I still wanted to use my body in that way. Mm-hmm. And I had dabbled in yoga in college, but you know, in college I was stu- doing like a lot of women's studies classes. I was an art history major and I was like, it wasn't like old art. I was doing things like how non-Western art becomes recontextualized when you take it out of its original surroundings. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So I was really into that. And you can imagine like the political theory and social theory that will surround that kind of topic. And then yeah. I went into yoga class and I'm like, this is boring hippie shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm not a hippie. <laughs> um, I, I did my, my, my graduating thesis on, on appropriation and, Oh, and how Japan appropriated their culture from Korea and China. Mm-hmm. And so just bringing up these notions of what, you know, is appropriation one direction or not, or, yeah. you know, is it in, and notions of, of colonialism. Um, can you, that's, that's, a, I'm, I'm so interested. Topic. I'm still loving it. I expanded on it in my graduate thesis. Um, and I wanted, cause I was like, I feel like I'm still, I still don't understand it. I still want to talk about it. And yeah. yeah, it's like, and it's always happening, you know, and all different, we see it happening in front of us every day. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, it's such like a Pandora's box of interesting things and provocative things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but, um, It really is. Yeah. And it's, especially when it, it comes to, you know, questions of you know identity mm-hmm. and I, you had your kids were they in korea when they were bo- when, excuse me in uh germany when they were, they were born. born in germany mm-hmm. and so you have german children yeah they have german passports and american passports and but you're in you're in southern california now mm-hmm. and how old were they when they moved to southern california to socal um kanoa was 20 months and lani was like three weeks shy of her fifth birthday so they did the same thing that you did exactly. and they they became americanized yeah yeah and now they're like german children mm-hmm. like when lani first moved here she spoke english with a german accent it was so cute we called it denglish like deutsch in english oh. <laughs> <laughs> and now she speaks german with an american accent yeah wow. right <laughs> yeah so yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I, I got exposed to yoga in college, but I didn't really understand it and I didn't like it. Um, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't like it. 
And then, um, but I kept going every once in a while. I don't know why. I'm like, I don't even really like this, but I keep checking it out. So something must be interesting. And then um, I moved to Hong Kong in 2000. So it was six years during which I very seldomly dabbled, but I, you know, I did um, in different kinds of yoga. I had no idea what I was doing. It was just part of like, should I work out? (laughs) Should I exercise? (laughs) I think it's a thing that you're supposed to do. Um, And I don't really dance anymore. So maybe I should do something. And I actually hate exercising. So maybe yoga will work or a hip hop class. Um, (laughs) And then I went to Hong Kong and they had, it was actually this Canadian guy. He's in Shanghai now. You might know him, Rob Lucas. Um, Yeah, I'm familiar with the name. yeah, Yeah, it's very, he's very acrobatic now, but he came yeah. to Hong Kong at age 19 and taught um, Ashtanga Lud classes at a place called Yoga Limbs. Okay. And I went just on a lark with my friend um, who was also doing communications at the Wall Street Journal. And we're like smoking cigarettes before and after. Yeah. And we went. <laughs> and I'm like, this is really fun. This is hard. Like I remember doing Pavrita Trikonasana, Trikonasana B. And I'm like, I can't actually do this pose. This is really yeah. <laughs> I thought I was wow. really good at stuff like this. Yeah. Um, and so I did that. It was the first time that I wanted to go to yoga class like every day, but I didn't. It was three times a week, lead class. I did that for a while. And then um, Michelle Besnard came to Hong Kong. And I would say that he was my first real teacher. I had a really deep relationship with him. I still do. He was a student of Graham Northfield in Australia. Oh, yeah. Pointy head. <laughs> Yeah, pointy head. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Have you seen him do headstand? I'm like, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> yeah. But at Michelle. some point in the in the evolution of the human species and female sexual preference, some girl really wanted a pointy headed man. And he, you know, that's <laughs> who is we, this girl? <laughs> who is this girl that extended that gene through history? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, Michelle used to be a student of um, BKS Iyengar. He was in Pune every year for like 15 years. He was like Mr. Like just doing Iyengar. So he was very, yeah. very into that practice. And then he met Graham Northfield in India. And he checked out Ashtanga a little bit, and then he went to Mysore. And wow. after that, it was all about Ashtanga for him. But mm-hmm. um, so when he came to Hong Kong, he set up the first Mysore program in Hong Kong, and right. it was and Hong Kong is a robust Ashtanga uh, culture. Yeah, Not now at that it, time though, it just now. exploded since yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. But Michelle was the first one. There was no Ashtanga school. He rented a space in Central. Um, upstairs in this little studio called Yoga Central on Wyndham Street. It was a cute little studio. And he only offered evening Mysore a couple times a week. And I had no idea what that was, but somebody told me that's how you really practice Ashtanga yoga. It's the real thing. (laughs) That's how you, if you really want to learn, you have to go to this thing called Mysore. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, I don't know. That's how I started Mysore too. It was like, yeah. And it was also in the evening. 
there was no, no Mysore classes in the morning. It was like no. an evening class. And yeah. And I was still like mysterious and doing evening things and, you know, all those things. So I went and I didn't know the sequence by heart. I didn't know the series. And I looked around the room and I could see that Michelle, he looked at me and I looked at him and he knew I had no idea. And he didn't exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm just like copying random things, people around me. It was right. just like all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I did not yeah. know the series. I didn't even know there was a series. I'm just doing the thing. And right. then he walked up to me and he goes, drop back. And I was like, what? Ah! <laughs> Wow. He looked wow. me in the eye sideways, like drop back. And I I did. I didn't do it well or correctly. I landed really hard, you know, it was like really ugly, whatever. <laughs> and I was like, okay, then I will. I was like 26, you know, I'm like, I am gonna do all these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then I was like, I'm coming back. And so after that, I got the book by John Scott. Yeah, and I was living on Llama Island, and you, have you been to Llama Island? No cars. It's like a little. Is tiny Llama little Island near Hong Kong? Yeah, you just take a ferry from Central, and it's like a fifteen-minute ferry ride to this little outlying island. It's so idyllic. Um, there's no cars. It's all small and fish markets and little Chinese farms, and mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Amazing. And we went to a, w- a wedding in Hong Kong, right? Oh. Yes. Yeah. We went to your teacher's wedding, or, well, your colleague's wedding. My colleague's wedding. Andrew. Oh, your teacher's wedding. Yeah, Julie. Yeah, Julie's teacher's wedding. I don't know. Is he he, your your colleague, your boss, your teacher? I don't know. Andrew's (laughs) like, I I love him so much. I feel like he's my brother. And I I am, like, happy to always defer to him in all things um, yoga and especially philosophy and chanting related because I don't – I'm not that – that's not my area. And I I love and appreciate it, but he's, like – he knows the stuff. Um, Yeah. But sometimes we have our little – and um, (laughs) (laughs) – That's good. It's good to have those. (laughs) You know, Andrew, he's, like, so gentle, and then he can be suddenly spicy. I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it's that Australian, yeah. you know, it's the yeah. Australian that comes out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, spicy people. I know, Andrew. So I know you. That's my know friend. Him. Yeah, he just. I mean, I have such a big soft spot for him. Like, I just, I totally trust him. I've yeah. never had to have the same conversation with him twice because I know if he doesn't respond, it's just because he forgot or he's busy. <laughs> but yeah. even if he forgets, he'll remember at some point. He'll remember and just you know follow through and. and <laughs> He secretly so. listens to these podcasts we heard. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he does. I got, so. I got caught. Yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> He'll listen to this one. He, For sure you know. he will. Yeah. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> so you started going to Mysore regularly, Mysore classes yeah, in Hong Kong. So Michelle, he got like a little, I don't know, can I say he got a sugar mama? Like one of these Hong Kong tie ties. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. You know those ladies who lunch, yeah. they live up on the peak and they wear yeah. like right. like carrot diamond earrings to Mysore class. Yeah, they yeah. become beneficiaries of, yes. of yoga <laughs> things sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, she opened up a studio for him in Wan Chai. And oh, so wow. he suddenly yeah. had this beautiful space where he could offer Mysore classes in the morning. He could offer things at night. Right. And, um, and I started Crazy going there. Rich. Yeah. 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 So I start, just started just, I just dove in. I just jumped in and started practicing every day. Oh, I learned the sequence and um, what I was saying on the roof 
of my apartment in Hong Kong. I turned the lights off so nobody could see me. And yeah. I did it at night. And I just went through that book and I tried to do all the things. I, I, I'm sure I did it all wrong. But I remember trying to figure out Buja Pidasana like in the dark. <laughs> like this would be really embarrassing if any of the neighbors saw me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. For sure. But That's I was amazing. just so fascinated and it felt so good in my body. And like for the first time, like I just felt like something, some, I just needed more. I needed to know more. I needed to just do more of it. Um, so then I started practicing with Michelle and he offered an apprenticeship and I love this, um, model of training teachers. Mm -hmm. He did an apprenticeship that was only available to people who practice five days a week yeah. with him for at least a year. So he could really see you. Mm -hmm. And then during the apprenticeship was a minimum of 18 months long. And you had to like the first couple months, I didn't even touch anybody. I didn't say anything. He just had me sit there and look and watch oh, and then yeah. after class he would say okay so what about what do you think of this person and how they did parsarita padottanasana a as you know compared to this other person um so he wanted me to really train myself to see tiny details yeah nice yeah and i don't get to just go and teach people and touch people you know so right yeah so i really love that that's and brilliant because he was so informed by Iyengar, I never got injured. I don't know if that I should credit it like that, but he could always see what I needed to do or what I could do or not do or what would be safe or not safe. Um, and I didn't really, I never got injured. So it That's was wonderful. Yeah. Well, yeah. until now. Until now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you. It's, it's, um, I, well, well, I want to dig into that for sure. I, it just seems like here you are, you're in Hong Kong, you're out of the, coming out of the London School of Economics, you're working at the Wall Street Journal, and now you're a, you're a, you're a doula and teaching yoga in Southern California. And it seems like there's a story there of how you got from A to B that, that something that said, you know what, enough of this isn't me. I need to go be me. Yeah. And I never really got a chance to figure that out when I was growing up. And, but I think there is a certain fire in most people of some sort. Um, and I don't know what to call that. I think there is some essential, um, dignity of yourself. I don't really know what, how to phrase it, where you need to know yourself. And I think if you don't get to some point where you need, where you figure yourself out or you have some access to looking at yourself and having some little bit of clarity about yourself, life can be really miserable and more difficult than it should be for anybody. And I found myself like that. I just, I was such a party girl. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know so many things that I didn't even know that I wanted to know. You know, it was just like I was just existing in this world, fascinated by a lot of things, but just not even knowing how to write a check. So, you know, there was, <laughs> I mean, I was just so, you know, on one hand, really sheltered and pampered, but also like not allowed to think for myself. And so I think my adulthood was a lot about like, what do I really want to do? And having a yoga practice, you know, like for so many of us in our community, this practice saved me, you know, it healed me in so many ways from, I mean, we could talk about it for hours, but um, 
it gave me that kind of mechanism to be able to um, sit with myself and to look at myself. And yeah, so I think the things that I've always been drawn to are things that concern like expression, like human expression and mm-hmm. um, n- something where you can service things. Like I've always been drawn to teaching or being with children and, um, the birth experiences really were huge for me. Um, so that was my interest in doula work. And I did get accepted to midwifery school. So um, I'm starting that. Yeah. So that's really exciting. Um, and I feel like that's that little pivot. It's like kind of like a pivot, but it's also so streamlined with what we do uh, in our practices and as Mysore teachers, because I feel like as Mysore teachers, you're, the main thing that I feel like I'm doing a lot is just holding the space and giving the sense of I am here for you um, so that you can do your work and to create this, you know, if you want information from me, if you want physical support from me, this is I'm here for that also. But primarily, like I can see you and I'm going to try my best to be as present with you as possible with no judgment. And yeah. but it's up to you to do your work, and that's kind of birth, right? That's kind of the work of a midwife. I was going to yeah. ask you if, like, that's really what a doula does as well. Like, they they really sit at, with with what with what what's happening. Yeah, doulas do that. Doulas are different from midwives in that um, doulas their job is basically to provide um, emotional support, physical support, and just be an advocate um, mm-hmm. for the mom and for the whole family, for the dad too. Uh, whereas a midwife, she's a medically trained professional um, to to be able to deliver, deliver you know, low risk babies, deliveries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, and so how is that like being in the Meister room? Like, I know you, you just, you just said it, but can you, can you talk more about it? Um, yeah, I'll try. Um, I love like my sort teaching my sore and teaching privates are my favorite way to share yoga. And I always feel funny about saying that I'm a teacher of yoga because I don't, I, I don't know. I'm just like doing the thing that everybody else is struggling through every day. Um, and I just share what I know and what I've experienced, but in no way does that mean that it's what you're going to experience. Um, but I do know something of the struggle that we all like when I hear you guys talking on your podcast, I'm like, oh yeah, I know that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, that feels familiar. <laughs> um, so in some ways we all experience those same struggles and the highs and the yeah. questions and, you know, the pride and the self-loathing and all those roller coasters. But when I'm in the Mysore room, I feel like I always do this like little, before I go into the room, this kind of like, I go in and I cleanse of anything that I've been thinking about and, you know, just kind of set the stage for myself internally. Like I am here for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm there, I don't feel like, like I'm not a teacher where I'm really good at, or actually I'm not that interested in talking a lot about technique. I mean, I can, and I like it. It's interesting and fun, but that's just part of it. Like for me, the big piece is, the whole experience or what you're experiencing as you're applying the techniques that you're using and everything that comes up and how we process that. And a lot of that work is so personal and unexpressible with words that um, sometimes I feel like I just have to be there. (laughs) You know, like when you're like when your son is like having a moment and you don't have anything 
helpful to say. You're just going to be there. And you're just going to let him know that you're there. Um, and sometimes I feel like that's all I can do and that's enough. Um, and I think I view teaching in the Mysore room kind of like I, like a mother. Mm-hmm. Everybody goes in and they give you the honor of allowing themselves to be seen by you in vulnerable positions um, physically, you know, and obviously in other ways. Mm-hmm. And then my job is to just be there for what they need um, and follow their lead. So I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. I'm a Mysore teacher. Like when I'm working one-on-one with somebody in the Mysore room or in a private, then I can be much more detailed, you know, mm-hmm. um, with them. But um, I mean, you guys are so experienced. You know, I, I feel like you know what I, you know. Yeah, I, I can totally, I totally relate to that. I think exactly what you're saying is, is spot on about holding that space and just being present and, and your presence. I mean, this is sort of the magic of, of Mysore, but it's like just the magic of being in the presence of, mm-hmm. of anyone is that having uh, somebody else's presence there or the witness or the observer, that perception changes yeah. the thing that's being perceived. Yeah. And so you actually don't really need to do so much except really, as you're saying, be there without your bullshit, Yeah, you know, getting in between mm-hmm. what you're observing. Totally. And it's, it's like yeah. an act of meditation. I mean, that's what I love so much about, about Mysore and the Mysore method is yeah. as, as a teacher, it's, it's a type of meditation practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always feel like I've done a practice. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's so like, it feels so holy to me to be allowed to be witnessing that and um, for somebody to trust me, for them to take on what I'm saying or being or showing. Um, and it's, it's so special because those things that we experience, you know, through all those years and hours and sweat, and we've all cried on the mat and all the things, um, it is such an incredibly profoundly I don't know. Transformative. Yeah, transformative. Mm -hmm. And to be to be allowed to witness that and to even be called upon to um serve in some way, it's it's so big. I don't almost don't know how to talk about it. And I almost hate saying that I'm a yoga teacher because it always makes me feel like here I am. And like now we're gonna like I'm gonna put on some awesome music and we're gonna it's gonna be so fun. You guys get that burn on, you know. I'm like, no. (laughs) You know what I mean? I understand completely. (laughs) I know we need like another word for it at this point. (laughs) Yoga's been so oversaturated in the West and so I don't know, turned upside down that it's it's lost its meaning, kind of like even like the word God in a way, right? Like yeah. it's kind of lost its meaning in some yeah. respect because it, it, when you overuse a word and it, you know, sort of loses power. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like midwifery is like that. You know, you can't yeah. judge this mother for her fear or her pain or her cursing or her whatever, her obstacles. And, you know, when you're in that birth experience, a lot of times stuff just comes up that you didn't know was there. And um, and I remember during the birth of my son and I was pushing for six hours because he was coming up with, out with his chin 
up, oh, yeah. which pr- yeah. makes the biggest part of the head present first. And so it was a long pushing period and I was ready to give up. And I was like, don't you have any drugs in your bag to the midwife? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know it's a home birth, but anything. And she, <laughs> to me, <laughs> she put her forehead against mine and she looked at me and she said, the only way out is through. And oh. I was like, all right, let's do this. Oh. And that's, that's yoga, right? That's our practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what we tell our students. Yeah. The only way out is through. And I was like, I've done that before. I can do this. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So that she was my inspiration. And it's always been in the back of my mind. Like, I wonder if I would ever be worthy of doing such work. And I remember talking to Louise Ellis after my son was born. And um, she said that she had also, I love her. Yeah. <laughs> she, said she had also considered becoming a midwife, but she was, um, she didn't like the death that can sometimes, not, not that she doesn't like it, but it was something intimidating, which I agree with um, because For sometimes sure. that happens. She had like, <laughs> what, four kids in Fayetteville, Arkansas? I think and three, three, four, three, yeah. three, four, and then just like, you know, like after they grew up, and then she was gone, and like I'm going to go live in India and grow dreadlocks. Yes, <laughs> I practiced um, with her in Rishikesh. Um, yeah, it, it was fun. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I also visited Louise in Rishikesh. That's I didn't so practice fun. with her. I was only there for a day, but we uh, sat and had some tea together. It was it was really interesting. She's wild. She I is. Practiced I practiced next to her for six months and she oh, was wow. just wild. And, <laughs> and it just to me, it was like watching water fall off a rock. Yeah. She actually is uh, one of the teachers that um, I met early on in 2000 and I guess it was four, maybe in Thailand. <coughs> and um, she was teaching a retreat and, uh, she allowed me to assist her on the retreat, and wow. it was amazing to teach with her and just to watch her. And um, you know, we we have like quite different personalities, but we yeah. we have a lot of uh, you know love and respect for each other. So yeah. it was, and I was really new to teaching and teaching Mysore at that time. So it was it was really special to be a part of her her retreat there. And yeah. Um, I was asking her about practice because I guess she would have been maybe about 50 at this time, maybe, maybe a little bit younger. I don't know, but I think she was about 50. <laughs> and so I was saying like, what do you, cause she would come in and kind of do half intermediate and then she'd go into advanced or she'd, you know, she's kind of did stuff. <laughs> and I was like, what, what's going on there? <laughs> and so she really, uh, talk to me about like aging actually at that time. And I was maybe, I think around 25. Yeah. You're like, that's never so, going to happen to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah. really think about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she said, yeah, you know, I used to be able to get up and do this practice without any problem. I could just like, you know, drink a cup of chai and like jump into my practice. And now I ha- I have about like an hour of pre-practice stretching I like to do, <laughs> and, you know, and I don't recover as, as quickly as I used to. So I, you know, I kind of take my time. I don't do as, I don't feel like I need to push myself or do as many asanas as I used to. Yeah. And 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the time I was like a little bit perplexed by this because it wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, orthodox sort of yeah. uh, style because we would practice together in the morning, right? And I was fresh from Mysore and yeah. just like full on, yeah. you know, and doing it, yeah, <laughs> coloring in the lines and really like <laughs> doing it the correct method. Yeah. Well, I've got Jackson Pollock at this point. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Did you say Jackson Pollock? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but I always appreciated I her like honesty and her approach and her uh, willingness to, you know, speak with me about her experience because it stayed with me and it's it's always now as like you know 20 years later it's sort of um it, it resonates for sure <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely yeah, and, and I'm like oh I understand I'm so I'm so yeah. grateful someone warned me <laughs> <laughs> I know right when you guys were did that podcast about aging I'm like thank you so much for doing this because this is like what I'm experiencing and I'm 47 now so and it, I didn't realize like I suddenly became 47 I'm like why what what's going on right now you know like right. I want to do different things and I'm like maybe I should want to do some qigong now and yeah yeah, yeah I appreciate my meditation practice so much more than I used to before it was the hardest thing in the world I'm like I can do ashtanga yoga for two and a half hours straight and sitting for half an hour is so much harder than that. Now it's like the, it's the, it's kind it's of the opposite, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, it's happened, what happened to your back, Julie? I don't know. Um, I've never had back pain, but for the past few months, I was hating doing all the titibasanas and feeling this weird sensation on the outside of my knee, like around that tendon. Yeah. And I thought, huh, that's weird. I'm just going to like not do titibasana then. The B and C mainly, and um, and then uh, and I kept feeling that twinge in my knee, the outside of my knee, and I thought I'm just going to be a little more gentle and back off that those deep forward bends, and then um, one day I woke up and like I couldn't move, and the entire right side of my body was just frozen, and I have yeah. no recollection of actually any event or incident that would have caused that. It just kind of like it was this weird sensation for a little while and then suddenly it was just this extreme debilitation yeah. and um, your life is over <laughs> i'm like i'm never practicing again obviously yep. <laughs> yep obviously if i can't get out of bed and i can't walk and i can't sit down and i can't lie down yeah i'm not doing do a yoga practice well, one thing i've realized you know as as you age and no one tells you this either, but sleep is dangerous. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is not good for you. Right? Like, you don't know what's going to happen when you wake up the next day. Sleep yeah. becomes, like, a little bit dangerous. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's very important happen. to, like, wrap yourself like a mummy <laughs> and hold yourself completely still. I got a weighted blanket. I'm not embarrassed to admit. And yeah, that's good. good. Yeah. It's really, it really helps. Um, and I'm like, maybe I'm perimenopausal. One of our friends, Holly, was talking about this too. We're like, maybe that's happening now because I keep getting up in the middle of the night. Um, and, you know, I, I credit this practice for not being afraid of that or not resisting it. Like I'm letting my hair grow fully gray and <laughs> like, I'm yeah. just doing this now. Um, Me because, too. Yeah, we're just doing this now and, and I like it. Um, but 
I, I kind of credit our practice too, like just practicing being present with everything that comes up. And this is just what's going to happen now. And it's like habit now to count your blessings and all those things that we've been doing since, you know, we were young and acrobatic or I, mm-hmm. you are still acrobatic. I'm- <laughs> mm-hmm. some, some days are better than others, love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's okay. Cause I still love to do it, but um, I don't have that hunger like I used to, like I want to do it because I love to, and I, I don't have an addictive personality, so I won't do it if I don't like it. Um, yeah. yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's just how it's going to be now. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to ask you just to, to finish, is your mom, it, did, was she really mad at you? Was she furious for the, the life choices you were making or was she able to kind of adjust? Um, my mom doesn't get furious. It's more, her style is more like, even to this day, like she doesn't really know what I do. She doesn't really understand. (laughs) (laughs) And my younger sister's like, okay, let me simplify it for you, mom. She's a teacher. Okay. She teaches in school. She teaches. Yeah. Yeah. Something new. That's very respectful. That's the highest respect. What she wanted me to be was not an elementary school teacher, but a professor. Yeah. You know, to this day, there are still conversations about you went to Barnard and then you have a master's from the LSC and you're still just doing the mom thing and teaching yoga. Um, And to me, those things are like super, super valuable. Yeah. 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 To me, like it's, I mean, probably going to sound super um, cheesy, but being a teacher. And being a parent, I mean, this is how this is how we change the world. You know, if you can be really super, super present and mindful about um, teaching and parenting, like this is literally how we change the world, how we imprint our babies from the time that they're fetuses um, mm-hmm. and when they're, you know, really young. And this is how I always thought about like being the mother. Um, and it's it's so instinctive in, in a lot of ways, but. Uh, and I think this is just where my mom and my older sister also, she kind of has the same view that, you know, all the things that I'm interested in are not that, you know, like, why would you do that? You have a degree from an Ivy League school. Why would you do that and not be a corporate lawyer? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, because I don't, you know, that's just not what I do. That's not how, that's not my place in the world. And um, if you don't like that, that's not my business. So I don't know what to say yeah. to that. <laughs> sorry (laughs) it's good the practice helped you find that though like like your what you feel is more your purpose or your dharma or your um calling or where you feel content where you feel like this is where i'm meant to be and it's and it i think it gives you courage to follow that too courage to really live that to like just being with yourself and all those hours we spend doing the work Mm-hmm. And this is where it brings you, like, you just have this sense of knowing yourself in a way that I didn't before. And that caused me so much grief because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So I was like, well, then I'll just go to a party instead. Um, right. <laughs> I'll just find a distraction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about your, when you were saying about your mom earlier and the, the feeling of, of adoration that she had, say for Korea, um, for uh, the United States, and like this putting it on a on a pedestal, and it it, it reminded me uh, of 
uh, one of the first things I learned when I was in Korea, which is, you know, like, you know, how to say your name and, and what you are and say, you know, miguk saram imnika or hanguk saram imnida, you know, you know, are you Korean? Are you American? I am American. Yeah. And I, someone taught this to me and I realized that, you know, all of these American servicemen in the fifties had gone over to Korea and all of these children had run up to them, you know, in their helicopters or, you know, in their Jeeps and said, and, and yelled out, you know, miguk saram, miguk saram. And what the, what the American servicemen heard was miguk, which is to say they went home back to America and they, and they told their, their younger brothers and their nephews, they're called gooks. Mm -hmm. They call themselves that. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this dynamic of these, these people who cherish and adore you and, you know, they think you're amazing and they're, and they're shouting your name, American, mm-hmm. and they turn, these guys turn it into a pejorative yeah. and all those guys go to Vietnam mm-hmm. and call the people there gooks. Oh man. It, and it struck me as, as like, that's what's wrong with Trumpist America yeah. is, is that kind of stupidity mm-hmm. and getting what, something really incredibly wrong about immigrants. Yeah. It's like here people are coming to the country because they love they love the idea of it. Yeah. And you're in, insulting their adoration. Yeah. So many things. Yeah. It's 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 painful. It's heartbreaking to think of it to um consider the devaluing of um yourself that you know people having that experience did. Um, and then carry it forward into the rest of your life. And then, you know, as it, as you tend to do, to pass it on unintentionally. And I, I do want to really say, though, that um, I don't, I understand my mom so much better now. And I have so much uh, more compassion for her. And when I speak of her, like my whole like kind of heart area feels mushy. And mm. uh, it, it's very, in a way, emotional because she still is such a pain in the ass. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really like sometimes I just answer the phone and I hit the mute and I'm like, she's just going to talk. It's like a monologue. Oh and my God. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just doing the dishes here. And, um, but now I just, because I have a, a bigger picture of all the things that make her, and as a mother, I know how much she loves us, you know, all the mistakes that she made and how, you know, deep and vast and profound her love is for us. And she's flawed, you know, she's traumatized and flawed and she's also just a normal person. And I don't always expect her to be something more than that. You know, it's like, get over yourself. You're not five years old. She doesn't have to be perfect. You know, (laughs) she made a lot of some, some really grave mistakes, but it doesn't mean that that defines her. Um, and, um, and I do hold her accountable and I do, you know, I, I have really held her feet to the fire about some things. Um, and until she acquiesced and she was like, okay, fine. I admit it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but still like she did the best she could, you know, with everything that informed her. So 
And that's yeah. a beautiful place to come to when you can oh my gosh. Uh, see your parents as just, you know, human beings that really did the best they could, yeah. really loved you to the absolute utmost of their capacity. Yeah. And then it makes me think, how can we reduce this kind of pain in humans again? You know, everywhere you see people acting like assholes, like 45, like that comes from, that's not, that's not because he had this, you know, really supportive, nurturing, you know, kind of no. upbringing. Like Number 45 did not have that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't, there wasn't like balance and respect, you know, and things like that um, in his upbringing. And then, and it's torturing him into his later years so yeah. you know, as parents we can we can shift that you know if we really work on ourselves so that's kind of yeah my hope that I can do that well I mm. think you're doing a great job <laughs> and it's been so fun talking to you oh, we could just talk so for good. hours and hours hey, I know makes me want to do like a cafe session in Mysore again <laughs> I know where can where can people find your teachings Julie um, well, I'm really lazy about my website, but I'm going to, I, I actually passed it on to somebody to do it for me because I'm like, I can't think about this right now. But, um, okay. you know, I'm going to do a website and, you know, and I, I, I've been teaching with Andrew, but like now everything's like all over the place. So I'm just basically teaching um, a couple of privates on Zoom. That's all my teaching is right now. Not because I don't want to teach, but um, because COVID. So yeah. everything's just like... Yeah. I, all my teaching gigs, um, except for like one or two when COVID happened. Yeah. yeah. Else, basically. But you're in Encinitas and sometimes you're teaching at Joyce Yoga. Yeah. Fantastic. So that's a right with um, Andrew. Like sometimes, you know, we've been doing a lot of intro courses together. Yeah. Since, um, right. COVID happened and we do these webinars and Andrew does all the talking and I'll do the demonstrating. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like next time. <laughs> when You're my- like the Vanna White to his Pat Sajak. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the break